Well, hello, dear friends. Greg Kokel here for Stand a Reason, and that's the name of the show. And thank you for being part of our uh, show today. Uh, listen, we uh, just did a couple of shows. Actually, one we recorded for the future a couple of weeks when I'm going to be out of town. I'm here now, by the way. So if you want to call in, 855-243-9975, uh, you're welcome to do that. And uh, be glad to get you in the queue and take your calls. But we've been practicing the uh, this uh, call. Call in in advance and leave a recording deal that we've been searching for a name for, and we have the name. And we got the name from Marvin Engstrom, and it's very simple, very straightforward. The name he suggested, the one we adopted for this uh, this enterprise, is simply Open Mic. And so we have Open Mic Callers who go online and go to our broadcast page and follow the prompts there, push the button, and give their question. It gets recorded, comes to Amy, and then when we're able, we just play that as part of a larger show when I don't take calls because we're doing it off schedule, and this is for a future uh, edition or part of a show that we're doing, and we just want to work some extra calls in or we're a little slow on actual live call-ins, and so uh, we just we have those calls. Uh, you can also dial up, and uh, to, to do that, you can just get on your phone and phone it in. The number there is 857-DIAL-STR. Pretty easy. 857-DIAL-STR or 857-342-5787. But Marvin, thank you for your suggestion. Open mic. We like it. There were lots of suggestions. We thank everybody for sending in the multitude of suggestions. We settled on this one. I think it's going to work. And Marv, we're going to Marvin, we're going to be sending you a little thank you gift. Uh, Amy's taking care of that, and um, I don't know what it is, but uh, we think you'll enjoy it. So thank you, and all the rest of you who made suggestions. By the way, um, we are halfway through the month right now, and that means we're halfway through our August annual August project to be one of the 100. We're encouraging 100 new people to sign up as strategic partners. That means you make a commitment uh, to a monthly gift, and that makes you part of this cadre of people that are the core support team of Stand to Reason. We love you guys. We love everybody who's giving. But you guys, strategic partners, it's a special commitment that you've made to us and that's a way of saying thank you for what we have given you, and it's a way of you also securing us to give to others in the future. And many of you, I'm sure, have thought about becoming a strategic partner. Strategic partners get automatically 10% off uh, in our shop, in our store, when you're buying stuff from Standard Reason. Uh, you're part of a specialized Facebook group. So we have special presentations or uh, live events with our Strategic Partners Facebook group, and um, that's fun. That's something you could do. But if you sign up this month for $25 or more, we're going to give you a, a, a link to the recordings, the videos of the 2022, make that 2122, that was last season's wonderful reality series 
and all the, the important talks, the main stage talks, all the things that happen. And uh, it's great because this is chaos to clarity, and we, we've never had a better event. Now, every year we try to raise the bar, but this was fabulous. We want you to be able to have it. That's our way of saying thank you. You want to be a part of uh, of, of being one of the 100, the, the 100 new strategic partners, um, simply go to donate.str.org slash partner. Easy. Donate.str.org slash partner. All the information is there. We're halfway into the month. We're halfway into our 100. I think we have 51 or 52 last I looked. So we're very thankful for the new people who are on board, and we're looking forward to filling out the rest of that 100. My challenge to you is be one of the 100. All right? Now think about that. Let's see. What else is going on? I'm going to be at uh, Baylor University in early September. Make that September 8th, Thursday. And I'll be speaking there to the Oso Logos group. Um, see, anything else coming up that I want you to be? Well, reality is coming up, Orange County. And uh, that's September 23rd and 24th. That's just a month away. No, it's a month and a half away, five weeks, six weeks, something like that. But, boy, do these come up fast. And that's the kickoff. We'll be in Seattle on the 14th and 15th of October. We'll be in Minneapolis on the 11th and 12th of November. Then next year we will have our three in the spring. Dallas, February 24th and 25th. We'll be in Philly, March 24th and 25th, and August, April 21st and 22nd. And uh, we've got a great lineup of people. Jay Warner Wallace is going to be on board with us. Jason Jimenez, Mary Jo Sharp, uh, Alan Schleeman, Amy Hall. I'll be doing some things. Tim Barnett. I mean, our whole crew is going. John Noyes. And we're all doing things. Robbie Lashua, who's in charge of our standards and outposts. And by the way, uh, we still have a room for like 10 more applications we're planning to open up this fall 100 new outposts. Those are like local stanteries and enterprises in the local churches. We need uh, directors for that. We've already launched a few of those. Um, there's a kind of jump-through-the-hoop process if you want to start something like that up in your local church or local community. Um, and we have a commitment in September, uh, October, the fall to open up 100 of them. We have half the states in the country represented by applications. We've got something like seven or eight or 10 different countries that are represented. We want to really expand the impact of standard reason. So uh, this is one way that we can do that. And you can uh, contact uh, Robbie at str.org. That's R-O-B-B-Y at str.org and tell them you're interested in the process. I think you can also go to, uh, let's see if I can find it. Um, yeah, here somewhere. I got all this fine print, and I need, like, yellow highlighter to help me find it. Outposts, here it is, str.org slash outposts, str.org slash outposts. All the skinny is there. By the way, John Noyes is going to be on tomorrow, Wednesday, August 17th at 12 p.m. That's noon. To the point live. It's going to be talking. It'll be on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube PT. And uh, if you want to visit str.org, scroll down to the bottom for the links 
to our social media channels. It'll help out. But he's going to be talking about uh, standing firm for Christian values in the face of a culture that uh, values, for example, taking unborn life. And so he's going to be an encouragement to you there. So that's tomorrow at noon. Well, tomorrow would be tomorrow to me. It would be today to you, Wednesday, since that's when you get this podcast. So that's John Noyes. Uh, let's see who else is going to be. There's one other. Alan Schleeman will be doing also a live video Q&A on SDR's Instagram tomorrow, Wednesday, August 17th at 1 p.m. Is that right? Yeah, today's the 16th when I'm broadcasting. And uh, you can ask your questions. Alan will answer those live. Okay, that brings you up to date on things. I want to talk about something that I have not talked about for ages and ages and ages, but I used to talk about it all the time. I'm looking at something that was sent in to us, and I'm looking at the date. This is embarrassing. So we get questions sometimes, and then I we print them out, and then I you know, put them in my folder, and I'll get to it sometime. <laughs> this is October 21st, 2014. That's eight years ago. I'm not sure if this person has the question still, but doesn't matter uh, because I want to respond to it. And it's a question about what people call, and I used to refer to as eternal security. Eternal security. Now, this is the idea that is captured in the phrase, once saved, always saved, for example. Can you lose your salvation? If you become a Christian, is it possible to become not a Christian? And in fact, this uh, season's reality is focusing in on a lot of people who appear to have done just that. Um, this deconstruction, let's take a look at Christianity and see if it's really true. Let's take all the wraps off. Let's look at the details. Let's take it apart, deconstruct it, and then let's leave it behind. Let's deconvert. That's kind of what's going on here. I like the way Tim Barnett put it. A lot of times people are asking questions not because they're looking for answers, but because they're looking for excuses to leave or something like that. How did he put that? Anyway, it's pretty clever. Um, and, and, and so this is what people are doing. We're, we're, the whole reality now, Seeking You Shall Find, is the theme, and we're focusing in on that issue. But it seems clear nowadays, especially there are people who have been good Christians for a long time, and then they're no longer Christians. In fact, they are hostile to the gospel. And Michael Shermer, the American Atheist Skeptics Magazine founder, um, that's part of his testimony. So how could somebody like Michael Shermer, who's hostile to Christianity, is an atheist or sometimes calls himself an agnostic, um, and 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 writes all these books in the magazine against Christianity, but if he was saved, how could he be saved now? Once saved, always saved? Really? Doesn't look like it. All right. So I haven't talked about this for a long time because— um, I haven't been interested in it, I guess. But I tell you, when I first became a Christian, I don't know why, but this was huge to me. I would go to the mat 
with people on this issue. I mean, it was an ugly picture. I mean, brothers or sisters in Christ, especially brothers, when we go disagree and bang, 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 I believed in eternal security, and I thought alternate, any, the opposite view that you could lose your salvation was just biblically wrong. But it was a big deal to me, and um, I generated a lot more hate than light, probably. And uh, so I, I thought, well, uh, you know, as time went on, I just kind of mellowed on that issue. But it is not because I don't think the issue is important. I found different ways to characterize my own convictions on this. Um, and um, and I, I, I do think, uh, and, I, and I, so I've, I, I continue to engage the issue in a very, very different way very indirectly, but not so much consciously. My convictions are reformed now with regards to soteriology, so I have the, a reformed view of election, not an Arminian view, and uh, the understanding the way that the reformed um, writers characterize it is that uh, is called perseverance of the saints. In other words, if you are genuinely regenerated, then you are going to persevere, and your perseverance is an evidence of your regeneration. Now, everybody in the discussion um, holds the view that if you die and you're a Christian, you're going to heaven. Okay, we all agree to that. Um, the one question, though, is: is, can you start out as a Christian or somewhere along the line, and then cease being a Christian. And there are two lines of discussion or lines of reasoning that people have raised that um, are offered as ways that this could happen. One is that you sin yourself out of salvation, and the second one is that you 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 apostatize. That is, you you deny Christ, and by the loss of faith, since faith is what saves you, once you disconnect with the faith issue, that is, you no longer have the faith, then you no longer has have the salvation that faith got you. All right. So those are two ways of thinking about it. So let me just. Uh, kind of cover this issue by backing into it this way. And that is, it's not going to be helpful to try to proof text the issue. That is, well, I have this verse that looks like you can never lose your salvation. Well, I've got this verse that says you can lose your salvation. And there are standard passages that people go to the lose-your-salvation point of view lots of times goes to Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10, uh, and some other passages, but these are—or um, your name being erased from the book of life, and, and these are these are reasonable um, passages. Well, let me back up and put it this way. These are passages that, um, that, that seem to speak to the issue in one direction. I have no objection to that. The difficulty is there's a bunch of passages that seem to clearly say the opposite. And so what you end up getting is this clash of verses, clash of passages, and um, they can't—both the, views can't be true. Uh, and if 
if you don't res- if this isn't somehow dealt with, you end up just with what appears to be a contradiction in the text. Um, and so, I, because of ambiguity of certain texts that texts that seem to indicate opposite things, um, I don't think proof texting is the best way to go about it. Rather, I think what you have to do is you have to look at the nature of the work of the cross and what verses say about the work of the cross and the nature of regeneration. And then ask the question, given the foundational theology that we seem to construct legitimately from passages that describe soteriology or salvation, does it appear that this is the kind of thing that is reversible? I mean, that's the way I approach it. And given the two different ways of arguing that it is reversible, you can sin your way out of salvation or you can apostatize out of salvation, Um, it seems to me the sinning one is the least defensible. Because here's the calculus, and just think of this. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. How does he do that? He saves sinners by something he did in his life. I should say two things. It is the life that he lived, which was a perfect life, and the death that he died, which was a substitutionary death, a substitutionary atonement. What this allows is for an exchange, and the exchange is Jesus' righteousness, given his perfect life, for our sinfulness. So the righteousness and the merit that goes along with it gets transferred to us, and the unrighteousness and the punishment that goes with it gets transferred to him. And this is all possible because of that transfer that he then paid that debt that then frees us up to receive his righteousness. This is called the the uh, the marvelous exchange by the reformers. Uh, I call it the um, what do we call it? The trade in the story of reality. This whole chapter titled the trade, and um, and this is the grounds for our forgiveness. Now I want you to think about something. If the blood of Jesus is there to cancel out sin, that's the whole reason it's there, to pay for sin, how can sin cancel out the blood of Jesus? There's a very simple equation there. This is why I think it's untenable to try to argue that if you sin too much, then you are disqualified from salvation. You could sin a little—not you can sin, that you're allowed to sin a little, but a little bit of sin here and there, we all do that. And so that—we're still in, but if we sin a whole bunch or big giant sin, bang, we're thrown out. Well, wait a minute, that means sin is more powerful than the blood of Jesus. And if it's more powerful than the blood of Jesus, how does how does the blood cancel out any sin to begin with? Paul said in what? First Timothy chapter one that he is the greatest of sinners. So, and his argument there is, if God can forgive the greatest of sinners, 
he could forgive the lesser sinners. Oh, well, that was B.C., and he got all of his sins forgiven. You think Paul didn't sin after that? No, we all sin after that. And if sinning after that means that we are not going to benefit from the blood of Christ, it's better to become a Christian at the end of your life. Then at least everything you've already done is paid for on that way of thinking. Of course, you got to prognosticate your ending. You've got to know when you're going to die, is what I'm saying. Anyway, that doesn't work. The blood of Christ is meant to cast out sin, and it does. Whatever sins you have committed, you are committing, and you will commit. It's got to cover them all. This is why Jesus could say to Telestai, it is finished, because it's done with. And if there's forgiveness for these things, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. This is Hebrews 10. So there's a very, very strong emphasis in Scriptures, especially in those passages that talk about the mechanics of all of this, the calculus, so to speak, that the power of the work of Christ in that single time cancels out all sin for all time for those who put their trust in that Messiah. So you can't sin yourself out of it. That's not going to work. Well, wait a minute. You said put your trust in the Messiah. What happens when you quit trusting him? And here's where I think that James, rather, um, John in 1 John has something that's helpful for us. Because what John says is that they went out from us because they were never really part of us. The point he's making there is there's a whole bunch of people that are identifying with Christianity in some sense, and even believe in some sense. John chapter 1, or maybe chapter 2 towards the end, many were believing in him, but Jesus was not entrusting himself to any of them because he knew what was in man. So Jesus understands the, the fickle nature of belief, and also in the parable of the sower, there's there were two types of soil that received the Word. The, one received the Word with joy, but it had no root, died out when persecution came. Another one received the Word, but produced no fruit, because the cares of the world, you know, choked it out. But it was the fourth that bore fruit, 30, 60, 100 fold. So, so you know, even Jesus is acknowledging that there are going to be those who are, 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 are not going to stay the course, even though they have appearances from the outside of being Christians. And, so, and what this teaches us, by the way, is appearances are deceiving. Well, he was in the church, he was a good Christian, all these other things. We don't know that. Well, we know he's in the church and that he did good things, but whether or not he was a Christian, this is something God knows. But we don't. The way we know is whether there's perseverance, and there's a number of passages that make that clear. He who endures to the end will be saved. Pretty straightforward, okay? So we are to endure. We are obliged to endure, okay? If a person doesn't endure to the end, they are not saved. So in this, I would agree, even though I believe in eternal security, with an Arminian 
because this indicator we both agree on. If they die as a, they're a believer, then they go to heaven. But if they don't endure to the end, then they're not. Now, the difference between us is whether is is this. In one case, say the Armenian case, they could have genuinely been regenerate and forgiven for that period of time, but then something else happened. Let's just say they apostatized. Like I said, I don't think you can send yourself out of this, but they apostatized, and the apostasy this loss of faith is the disconnect, okay? And so they don't stay saved, and they die unsaved. That's one way of explaining what took place. The other way of explaining is that they never were regenerate in the first place. Okay, now which is the right way to approach it? And this is where I got to look at the broader theology. Um, the foundational theology of salvation and regeneration. It just seems to me, as I'm looking at these passages, given the kind of characterization that is made of Christians who are regenerate, who get regenerated, what happens to them? There is a change on the inside, a transformation. It isn't like they just get their name on a list for forgiveness— but later their name gets taken off of the list. There is a miracle of regeneration that takes place. And that regeneration creates a new creature. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Well, how do we know if that really happened in somebody's life? by the demonstration of their life, how they are living. And as long as they live in a way that is consistent largely with being regenerate, then we have the confidence, and so do they, that they are regenerate. But if they end up falling away, look at Demas. Demas was a companion of Paul's. And there in Second, Second Timothy chapter 4, Demas has deserted me, having loved this present world. Well, I think Paul makes a pretty strong statement that Demas showed his true colors ultimately at the end. He is even discipled by Paul still. He shows his true colors. He's gone. And John says they left us because they were never with us. And I think that's the final criteria. So here's the way I would characterize or answer this particular issue. If a person this is a stipulation. If a person is genuinely regenerated by the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit, and given the faith that goes along with that, by grace you're saved through faith, it is not of yourselves. That is a gift of God's. Okay, if that actually takes place, that miracle of regeneration cannot be undone. It has nothing to do with free will. You, 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 your will, however you want to construe that process, was expressed to receive the gift and then be transformed. And God honors that decision and makes you into something new that can't be unmade. And by the way, if you are regenerate, you don't have a will to be unregenerate. You don't want to be unregenerate. You want to be with God. 
you want to love Jesus. You want to honor him and obey him, and you seek to do that. Are there failings? Are there falterings, sometimes huge ones? Yes. Nevertheless, the trajectory is something very particular. It's not in the world according to the flesh, but it's according to the Spirit. Romans chapter 8. Okay. Now, how do we know? We don't know all the time. We can usually have a pretty good indication by the life that's being led. And if people are living, if they claim to be Christian and they're living like hell, they're probably going there. But they never lost their salvation. That they, Rather, they never had it to begin with. They were like one of those seeds that was planted that just never really produced the fruit characteristic of genuine salvation. It's not works righteousness. These are indicatives. People who are genuinely regenerate are going to manifest it in the lives that they live. That's the point. So, do I believe in eternal security? Yeah, properly qualified. Regeneration, genuine regeneration is irreversible. How do we know that? We see a continuity in somebody's life of commitment to Christ that lasts to the end. The saints persevere. True saints persevere. Those who are not true saints fall by the wayside, either in their behaviors or in their confession of faith. And this is where, by the way, the sinning issue is relevant. They don't sin their way out of salvation. Their lifestyle of, of, of the flesh, commitment to the flesh, again, back to Romans 8, life according to the flesh demonstrates that they are in the flesh. And Paul means in the flesh there, meaning unregenerate. And when he says in the spirit, he means regenerate. He doesn't mean like you're spiritual that day, but the day before you weren't that spiritual. You are not in the flesh, he says, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. And if the Spirit doesn't dwell in you, you're none of his. So that's the distinction that Paul is making in Romans 8. And by the way, those who are walking according to the Spirit, who are led by the Spirit, are putting to death the deeds of the flesh. And that's what Paul means by led by the Spirit. Not a hint, hint, nudge, nudge, take this job, marry that girl. Rather, led by the Spirit means putting to death the deeds of the flesh. You are manifesting holiness in your life because of the Holy Spirit that is now joined to your life as a permanent part of your life. Irreversible regeneration. Okay, so let's take a break. And uh, we got some calls coming up here on Stand to Reason. Have you seen our brand new website? Stop by str.org and enjoy a fresh, clean layout with all the same great content. The new Stand to Reason website was designed with you in mind. It has an easier-than-ever navigation and a crisp, simple layout so you can find all the sound analysis and careful commentary that you've come to expect from us. Browse new features that make finding your favorite resources easier than ever. As always, it's our goal to equip you, our fellow Christians, with a confidence, clear thinking, and courage you need for every encounter you have as a Christian ambassador. Our new website is just one way we're fulfilling that goal, allowing you to access the resources you need in a new and improved way. So visit str.org and keep coming back to discover new podcasts, articles, and videos each and every day. You can take Stand to Reason with you through our mobile apps, available for free from the App Store or the Google Play Store. 
the Quick Reference app gives you short, easily accessible courses on our most popular topics like tactics, homosexuality in the Bible, morality, the story of reality, and many more. The Stand to Reason app has all our latest content available at your fingertips. You can listen to our podcasts, check the blog, and access timely and practical resources. They're free, so download the apps today on the App Store or the Google Play Store and start carrying Stand to Reason with you everywhere you go. If you enjoy our apps, you can help other people find them by rating them on the App Store or the Google Play Store. All right, back at you here and ready to take your calls on Stand to Reason. Let's go to North Carolina. And Mr. Glenn, welcome to the show, buddy. Hey, how you doing, Pastor? Okay, I'm doing great. I got a good question for you. It seems like every time I sit down on my computer, it it turns out to be Tuesday night. (laughs) And I'm late. But I have a question. Uh, I don't know how important it is, but it's important to me. In the chapter of the Gospel of John, the last chapter, the last two verses. Mm-hmm. I probably don't have to tell them to you, but let me read them to you. All right. 24 says, This is the disciple which testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. John's talking about himself. Right. He's telling you, look, I saw this and talked to it, and I'm telling you the truth. There you go. 25, he says, And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which... If they should be written, every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written and be written. Right. Amen. Amen. He, he said the world couldn't contain all the things that uh, Jesus Christ did. Obviously, we only got a smidgen of what Jesus had to say in in the flesh, a three-year period of his ministry. Right. Now, Jesus said that he would, his Father would send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, a teacher who would help recall the things that he said. How do we tap into that information that we missed out on? Is that come from the Holy Spirit? <laughs> no. Uh, I, I want the rest of those books. Yeah, right. Well, obviously he's speaking hyperbolically. He's using an right. exaggeration for effect here. Yeah. Uh, there's a massive amount. I mean, he's got he's got 21 chapters here already. That's a lot of stuff. But he's just saying, this is just the tip of the iceberg. What Jesus did was so amazing. If you were to see it all or write it all down, it was like, wow, like holy smokes kind of thing, you know? Yeah. And, um, and so, so, but the the idea of scripture being inspired um uh does not huh, how can I, i'm trying to think of the best way to put it it is true truth but it's not exhaustive truth is the way francis schaeffer put it all that the scripture says is true and it is given for a reason not everything jesus said has been told to us you couldn't write all that down right but the things that god gave us was there for a purpose, and that's what ended up in Holy Scripture. In the inspired writers recorded the things that God wanted them to record for our benefit. Um, there are plenty of other things that happened that Jesus did that were true events in history 
things that Jesus said, and as God, these are the words of God, or were the words of God, but they weren't the words that God wanted for posterity. I mean, I think the Bible, 66 books, is long enough. You know? Well, I think what's in my mind is once in a while, periodically, I'm 80 years old, I've been serving the Lord for 38 years, and sometimes when I'm just thinking, praying, but especially when I'm studying the Bible, mm-hmm. something will come to me that is not written down on that page. And I know it's real. What do you mean when you say it's you know that it's real and true? But explain to me what you mean by that. Oh, as an example, when a disciple said to Jesus, "Which one of the commandments is is the greatest?" and he said, "Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and mind." Right. And then I give you another one, another commandment: "Love thy neighbor as thyself." Right. And I'm thinking, I can't do that. How can I do that? How can I love my neighbor by myself? I, I don't even like some of them. And then it's just like the Spirit said to me, you can't unless you do the first one. If you do the first one, love God, then you can love your neighbor no matter how bad he is. You cannot say that person is unlovable. You can say, I can't love him, but it's not his fault if you don't love him. Is, am I not correct? Well, I I wouldn't put it the way that you put it. I think you're on to something, and what I would characterize that is as an insight that you have, not as a revelation from God. And I'll tell you one of the reasons why I think that's true, Glenn, is that when you look at the positioning of these two great commandments, at least in one of the Gospels, um, this is right before the parable of the Good Samaritan. And what's interesting is the, the, the legalist is hearing the great commandments, and then he says, the text says, wishing to justify himself, he asked, who is my neighbor? Wishing to justify himself. So he probably figured, well, I pretty much love God the way that's my whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. Although, I don't think that's possible to keep either. I don't think the, either of them are possible to keep. Um, but but that's when Jesus said, your neighbor is your greatest enemy. That's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I think what Jesus was trying to do with those great commandments is communicate something true, but something that's so terribly burdensome, if that is your if you are seeking to be justified by law, that you realize, as you pointed out, this can never happen you know you can never do the second, okay? I have never had any moment in my life where I have loved God with my whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. And there have been times when I've—the second commandment, when I have loved my neighbor as myself, I've done something selfless on behalf of my neighbor, but certainly not lived that way. So keeping—living those two great commandments fulfills all of the law— but nobody lives those commandments consistently, therefore they don't fulfill the law, therefore they're guilty, and they need to be rescued and saved by a Savior. That's what's going on there. It's not a, 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 it's not, 
it's not a formula, a practical formula for self-justification. It's demonstrating that the law is overwhelming. Okay, so I'm just using this as an example to say that what you th- what you think you got from the Holy Spirit, which is like additional revelation, I don't actually think it fits what was going on there. I think part of it was an insight, but your insights are your own. You you can't claim divine origin or divine authority for those things. You know. I understand that. Yeah. So uh, with regards to the other things that Jesus did, we don't know. I, I I'll I'll give you one interesting example though about this, um, and that is in in the Gospel of John. There's an account of a woman caught in adultery. All right. right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now this is this in every Bible. Just about every Bible, especially if it's a study Bible, makes it clear that in the most ancient manuscripts, this whole account of the woman caught in adultery does not appear. It shows up in later manuscripts, and it shows up in different places. The standard place to put it in New Translations is there at the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7, I think, of, of the Gospel of John. But, but um, So this is questionable—well, let's back up and put it this way. This is not holy writ. It seems to me obvious that it's not in the early examples. Somebody added it in. But I will tell you my opinion about this, uh, Glenn, and that on this particular account. I think it is not holy writ. It is not inspired Scripture. But I th- do think it is a record of something that Jesus actually did. And the reason I say that, and I've had other people who've said the same thing to me, other people who are real experts in this, they, they, they have the same conviction about it. Um, and that's because there's some unique features in this, in, this, uh, in this episode of Jesus' life that show that they're just so quintessential Jesus, you know. Um, he's trying to be trapped by the Jews. They catch this woman in the very act of adultery. They don't produce the man. If she got caught in the act, where's the guy? No, she's the one who's dragged out. The guy was tricking her to get entrap her so they could use her against Jesus. And then they said, the law says this, what do you say? Now, he doesn't say anything. He just starts writing in the sand, and little by little, they just disappear. And then he says, where are your accusers? And they said, they're gone. She, he says, neither do I accuse you. Now, what's interesting about this is Jesus was not in a position to be able to accuse her because he was not a witness to the crime. So he keeps the law, but he thwarts their efforts to use this woman illicitly against Jesus. Now, he, he figures that she has been caught in the act, and, uh, and she has been sinning. So he speaks to that, go and sin no more. But he doesn't inveigh against her with the law because the law doesn't allow that if he's not a witness. So what does Jesus do? He gets the perfect answer. He thwarts this effort by the Jews, and, and yet he still addresses the sin of the woman. Um, it's quintessential Jesus. You know? they, could have, they could have stoned her. They could have, but they didn't, yeah. because all of the witnesses left. Jesus yeah, he wrote, he wrote something on the ground that embarrassed them, and what he said was, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. That's not a requirement of the law. But well, listen, I, you know, I have put a lot of trust in your writings. I read everything you write that I can find on, on the website. 
And uh, I figure if anybody knew what Jesus wrote in the dirt, you would. Well, so, I, I don't. Ahead, tell me what it was. <laughs> well, nobody knows because we don't. We aren't told. However, <laughs> I, I did see a movie once, and they and what they showed Jesus writing is the sins of the people who are bringing the accusation against the woman. Yeah. Now, this makes uh, entire sense, but we don't know for sure. So yeah. he says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Then he writes, Levi, adultery. Oh, Levi's gone. Uh, Samuel, murder. Oh, Samuel's gone. And he's writing the sins out. Pretty soon, all of those guys are gone. There yeah. are no accusers, and therefore, there can't be a trial and a stoning. I've heard uh, a dozen uh, sermons on that very verse you're talking about. Let me ask you one other thing, and then I'll let you go. I don't mean to put you up. This statement, it also came to me about uh, a particular person. Well, I'll give you the name, Donald Trump. And I said, it was a Facebook post, and I said, I love Donald Trump. Not because of who he is, but because of who I am in Christ. Hmm. Okay. Is that not true? Well, that's consistent with biblical revelation. We are new creatures, as I mentioned earlier, and therefore our obligation is to love others who are unlovable. And yeah. <laughs> arguably, Donald Trump, you know, is unlovable at times. <laughs> Aren't so, we all? <laughs> yeah, of course, of course, and that's the point. So I think you're in. I think your your thinking is sound on that uh, particular issue. Okay, Glenn. But I would, I would not attribute it to, to the Holy Sunday Spirit. Class Sunday Sorry? Week? Could you come to my Sunday school class this week? Could I come to your Sunday school class? Yeah. Well, I usually, you know, don't go anyplace unless I'm invited, but if you want to invite me, there's a process <laughs> that you go through, so who knows? It's a 3,000-mile trip. What else you got yeah, to do? What the, yeah, that's right. <laughs> what the hey? Okay, hey, Glenn. Nice talking to you, bro. All right, nice talking to you. Love you very much. Oh, Bye-bye. you're sweet. Thank you, Glenn. That was very sweet. Uh, let's just go. We'll skip the commercial, and we'll just go right here uh, to Carly in Augusta, Georgia. We were just in Augusta a couple months ago, Carly. Um, yes, we were had a great time. Oh, you were there, too. Okay, great. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we actually, um, my husband and I are the couple that kind of meant on eHarmony because of financial oh, reasons. Oh, <laughs> no kidding. Now, I do remember the conversation. That was a great conversation yeah. we all had together. Super. Yeah, it was really really good. And you, um, you actually came to our church afterwards, and so that was really special for us oh. um, that next morning. So thank you. Oh, you're so um, welcome. Glad to help out. Yeah. Um, so I was just wondering something about evolution and morality. Um, so I know the argument put out by, I think, Sam Harris and others about uh, morality being a trick of evolution to get our genes into the next generation. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that you have argued, and probably others, that our genes or everybody's genes are different, and so that would make everyone's kind of tricks, morality tricks that have been put into them from evolution subjective. Um, is that, am I correct in articulating Well, that? I, I'm trying to, I'm not sure exactly how I, I, I put this. I think there are lots of problems with trying to explain morality using Darwinian evolution. Mm-hmm. The biggest problem, the biggest problem is that it, it produces, um, all it can do with regard to morality is to produce a, a relativistic morality. 
And the simplest way I've found to distinguish relativism from objectivism is what I call the inside-out distinction. So when a truth is grounded on something inside of a person, that is called a relativistic truth, all right? But when it's grounded on some fact in the world outside the person, that would be an objective truth. So I believe in gravity, but gravity doesn't work because I believe it. The truth of gravity is not inside, not grounded inside of me. The thing that makes gravity true <laughs> is something outside of me. If it was inside of me, and I didn't believe anymore in gravity, I would float away. But that doesn't happen because it's outside of me. That's the difference between a subjective truth and an objective truth. Now, when we complain, when people complain about the problem of evil, they are looking at circumstances in the world that they understand to be evil in themselves. All right? And that means the evil is in the object, the thing out there. Some people may not think it's evil, but it's still just as bad if it actually is bad. That's why people raise the issue of God's existence uh, based on the problem of evil. If he was really good and powerful, he would not allow the evil in the world. Now, I'm not going to answer the objection, but I just want you to see that the objection depends on there being evil in the world, as it were, okay? Objective evil, okay? So, uh, to me, what I do is I raise, well, that's an evidence of God who grounds the good and bad, the universal good and bad, and that's how we can say something's bad, because we have a standard that God provides, all right? right. The, the Darwinist says, oh, no, 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 we can get that kind of morality from evolution, all right. Now let's just pretend that Darwinism was able to man, that it was a process that manipulated the the chemistry. That's what we have here: chemistry, DNA, manipulated the chemistry in such a way that people would have beliefs about right and wrong that helped them get their genes in the next generation into the next generation. Okay. Um, well, um, what kind of morality is that? Is that a morality on the inside? Or is that a morality that is grounded on the outside? What would you say? Outside. Pardon me? On the outside. Did you say outside or inside? Uh, outside. Okay. It would, it, it, if it's the genes in the person that is oh. generating the belief of morality, is that inside the person or outside the person? Oh, inside. inside. It's inside the person. So... If evolution can do anything, all it can do is generate beliefs inside of a person about right and wrong. It cannot make any act out in the world wrong or right, okay? okay. So, in other words, and I think this is a tricky concept to follow, and I'm laboring right now with a chapter. Amy and I were just going over it before the show, where I'm trying to make this concept clear. But evolution produces a relativistic morality if it can produce any kind. All it produces is relativism. Relativism is not enough to make sense of the problem of objective evil in the world, so Darwinism can't do the job it claims to do. That's the way my argument goes. And it does raise other issues. Um, maybe a whole bunch of Darwinists or a lot of people are, let's just say, 
let's say Westerners evolved a certain, or Americans evolved a certain ethic, but maybe Germans, especially under the Third Reich, evolved a different ethic. Mm-hmm. In, in what sense do we say that their sense of what was right was was actually wrong? If it's evolution, mm-hmm. evolution produces the good stuff, and it produces the bad stuff, too. It produces all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. Your, your question is about a standard set, a common set of moral rules that evolution could have tricked us into, um, but it doesn't seem to be there is such a thing as a standard set of moral rules. And incidentally, the Third Reich was very good at getting its own genes into the next generation. Because it killed yeah. everybody else, and you know that they didn't, that that they they didn't like that were subhuman, or yeah. many of them, millions of them. So mm-hmm. I, I I I'm I'm I think the attempt to try to explain uh, morality by using Darwinism fails completely to do the job. How mm-hmm. how, how how does? Here's another way of looking at it. Okay, and I was. Um, there's a, a a movie out about C.S. Lewis's life, um, and it's it's very clever. It's only a little more than an hour long, but it's called the Most Reluctant Convert, and mm-hmm. um, and it's a it's a characterization, a drama about his Lewis's conversion. Okay, mm-hmm. um, and I watched it two nights ago with my wife on uh, Amazon Prime, so it's available. Uh, for four bucks or five bucks or something like that. Anyway, so um, this is a minor encouragement for people to watch it. It's great, but there was a there was there was a line in there that relates to this issue, and basically, if evolution tricks us into believing there is a real right and wrong in the world when there is no real right and wrong in the world, it tricks us into believing false things. All right, that's basically what's going on. It tricks us into believing false things to get our genes into the next generation. What other false things do we believe that evolution has tricked us into believing? That's the question. Mm-hmm. And that came up in part of the dialogue in Lewis's life, because Lewis talks about this concept, too. You know, okay. can, if evolution produced our rational faculties, how can we trust the conclusions that we come to based on reason? Okay, and you, like... Could you explain a little bit more about what do you mean about the false things? Okay. Um, This goes back to the inside-outside distinction, okay? Um, Let's say uh, human beings have a belief that uh, genocide is is immoral, okay? What is, is genocide itself on the outside actually immoral? Or have we just been given the belief that it's immoral because it helps us get our genes into the next generation? Well, the answer on this view is that it's just given us the belief. The belief doesn't attach itself to anything real in the world. Genocide isn't actually immoral, isn't objectively. And Michael Roos, the philosopher who's an atheistic evolutionary philosopher, makes this really clear. He said that 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 morality is a total illusion created by our genes to protect us, get our genes into the next generation, the selfish gene idea. So so what this amounts to is then we believe that 
genocide is wrong in itself, but it isn't really wrong. We just have this false belief about it because it serves some evolutionary purpose. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and people like Michael Roos are very clear that this is a false belief. So then the question is to Michael Roos, if evolution produces those false beliefs, then what other false beliefs does it cause us, uh, does it produce? And okay. and this is this is deadly to evolution because, and this was the point that came up in the Lewis piece that we saw the other day, is it, it, how is it if evolution only tru- produces, it only chooses natural selection chooses for for re- getting your genes in the next generation. It does not choose for truth. Then how can we trust our rational faculties that are the result of evolution? We can't. That's the point. Um, so, like rational. Oh, I'm sorry. Rationality being immaterial because we because we can't explain, right? Because rationality is immaterial, so it couldn't. It, well, it can't. It's a material process. All it can do is produce material things. So yeah. we can't produce the biology cannot make any act wrong in itself. Is another right. way of putting it. <laughs> biology can't make any wrong, any act wrong in itself. That's the problem with the evolutionary thing. All you end up with is a relativistic uh, morality, and and what we need is some way of explaining objective morality because that's at the heart of the complaint of the problem of evil. So, Carly, thank you for the call. It's nice to hear from you again. Say hi to your husband. And uh, so glad that Stan Reason was important in bringing you together, and maybe we'll see you in Augusta in the spring. All right, that's it for this hour, friends. Great Coco for Stand a Reason. Give them heaven, friends. Okay? Bye-bye.